Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. On this episode, I've got Dane Madsen, who's started tons of companies and led several huge ones. We're going to talk about travel, foxholes, and the power of asking why. Hello and welcome to In the Know, where I am Al Sarva, co-founder of Notel and a few other things, bring you conversations with all the interesting people I bump into, and this time I've got Dane Matson. Hi, Dane. Hi, Amal. How are you? <laughs> I have been puzzling about how exactly I'm going to introduce you. I, all I know is as I was looking through all the things you've done, I had to talk to you and get you on In the Know. Uh, veteran company builder, company leader, sometime consultant, sometime advisor. You've done a, a, quite a lot of different things, a lot of different industries. So maybe, maybe you need to introduce who, who all, what you exactly are. <laughs> um, you know, it's sort of funny in, in trying to define that. Uh, I guess it, it just goes down to I am an intensely curious and uh, impatiently focused on learning things. So I've got really a, a career path that's accidental. Um, nothing that I got involved in, and I'm now 35 plus startups. Um, that was on top of almost 20 years in uh, the money business with Cheers and Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch and groups like that. A couple years as a VC. So I sort of hate to admit that, but it's all about transparency. But but, but but none of these things are anything that I woke up in the morning and said, you know what, I want to go do that. What I really got up in the morning was embracing my ignorance and learning stuff. And uh, so it's taken me on this circuitous route through a forest of discovery. Um, and I love that. I love that. I'm, I'm constantly learning new things even after all of this time. And the, the longer I go, the less I know, I think. Well, it's clear that no one could have planned uh, the career uh, that takes you through all the different companies that are just in your profile, and um, uh, and only a curious person would put up with it. I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, banking, and you're like Shears and Lehman Hutton back in the day, and then you're at Stiffel, which is, I mean, those that bank is pitching me now. I mean, they're, and Sutro, I guess they're, Sutro's, uh, they're a big, it went away. They, a big firm. It went away. No, it, it went away. Yeah, it, it was in the mm -hmm. 90s when I was there. We were mm -hmm. uh, actually part of John Hancock's securities at one time, and then mm -hmm. um, the Tucker group out of Boston and Sutro spun out into a, a single entity. But it I went see. away, I want to say, late 90s. Um, well, all things, all things must pass, pressure. Dane. All things must pass. Yeah. So you, you got your, you got a bunch of these banking things, and there's like yellow pages, which mm -hmm. I, I really want to know more about and the mindset there. And then in the last number of years, like a ton more, uh, just just a continuous stream of new and different companies on a wide range of topics. I mean, is there like a theme that is your industry theme? Some founders kind of have them. I certainly don't. I've worked in everything from mobile phones to neuroscience to real estate. Uh, I wonder how you think of your yourself as being organized in your entrepreneurial work. Um, so the thing about being an entrepreneur that, that I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts these days. Um, I've gotten to be quite the junkie and I listen to a number that are focused on, on businesses and startups. And, and I hear people say, oh, well, being an entrepreneur is in my blood. Well, you know, that's not right. It's, it, this is all nurture. It's not nature. I grew up 
uh, in a very small town in Idaho, and it was the same town my dad grew up in, only when he grew up, it was 2,800 people, and we had 2,200 people when I grew up there. And all I knew is I wanted to discover the world. The, the, the things that were the most interesting to me uh, growing up, my parents, uh, we had National Geographic, we had, uh, we had uh, the encyclopedia, and then there was a uh, probably the first travel writer ever, professional, Richard Halliburton, and a series of books that my parents had, and I just dove into those and realized that there was just a big world out there, and I wanted to discover it. Growing up on a, on a, in a rural cow town or farming town in Idaho was not really what I wanted to do. And um, I wouldn't trade it because it created uh, sort of an expectation that you had to get up, go do things, make things happen, which is where the entrepreneurs come in. I think uh, everybody huh. on the entrepreneurial side has got Small a, town is a do-something place, is what you're saying. Well, small towns, because for me, it was... Uh, my dad was the farm equipment dealer, and we had a farm, and we had to do some other things. And so at a very young age, there was a, a connection between mm, doing things and getting rewarded for them. And the reward wasn't necessarily money. It was there was there was a, le- a, a high level of satisfaction. And so uh, the gratitude of your customers it, and of the town and, you know, maybe less yeah. prestige and solving a problem. Like, and and that's and that's the real key there is the whole issue of solving a problem. When you grow up on a farm that's 160 acres, and you are on the back end of that farm, and something breaks, you had better figure out how to fix it because it's a long way back to the shop. And so, problem solving is something that you get into real early um, if 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 you're in these sorts of environments. And I, and I contrast that to. You know, people who might grow up in Manhattan, and I would have loved to grow up in Manhattan. I would have loved to go to some of the, the great schools and all of those things. That just didn't happen, so I could. it just doesn't matter. But problem solving is what an entrepreneur is about because it's, it's problem, it's process. You've got to learn process, and that's what has driven me. So, this, so you know, I had this contrast to the world that I wanted to discover, and I had some skills about problem solving, and I think that's where... I ended up on a path that just it, it, from the time I was probably five, I was going to be in something that would eventually be an entrepreneurial environment, whether it was as a as a crafter of, a, of an opportunity or as a uh, as a participant in it. Um, Another way to describe a... what your family was doing is um, running businesses and starting businesses. You're running right. a farm. You're running the equipment business. You said you tried a few things, maybe. Maybe they didn't get big, but maybe that you were trying to sell seeds or import stuff or have a store or I don't know. I mean, am I wrong? My my brothers and I were restoring antique cars, not because we had money to do that. We were were literally dirt poor, but we would go find these exotic cars and then we would go hunt and find the parts. We would fix them and we would sell them. Well, you don't think of that necessarily as an entrepreneurial thing. You think of it as a hobby. But reality is, it's exactly what we're doing. We were solving a problem. We were creating a little extra cash on the side, and it was just these sorts of things. And you don't even—it doesn't slap you in the face that oh, this is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur thing. So, yeah. Well, I mean, so bias action, part of the kind of 
folklore of Amazon and, and Bezos' direction to his people. And, and I think people have other terms for that and in other places about, about owning problems and, and getting them solved. And, and that certainly is one of the hallmarks of entrepreneurship. The, the, another interesting theme from your hometown um, was the was the desire to go see the world. I, I mean, some people stayed, right? That, so in, in that way, you were different. Oh. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet 80% of the kids I went to high school with still live there. Hmm. I did, it, it, it just was not, it's it, going out. It, it, I told somebody one day that the most dramatic moment I ever could put my finger on was the day I got my passport. I didn't even wow. know I needed a passport, but I got a passport. And now you've got one, go do something with it. And that's where you know, it's, it's sort of funny. This area that I grew up in is uh, highlighted when you see all the maps, the electoral maps. It's highlighted as its own island of incredibly red uh, America. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm so not that person. And I think, and I go back to it's using a passport. It's going little places then going big places. I spent a ton of time in China. I spent a ton of time in Europe. I spent a ton of time you know, in, in uh, Central America. And the reality is that the more aware you become, and a passport is a, it's not just a passport past a border, but it's a passport for awareness. Um, it's, yeah, what happens so, when you touch down? I mean, there's a book I, I quite like that a friend wrote. His name is Shane Snow, and the book is Dream Teams. And it's about what makes extraordinary teams. And one of the, the, the bits of research he spends a bunch of time on is um, some work on folks who have traveled a lot or not traveled a lot, and their differential performance on standardized exams and problem solving and a bunch of stuff like that. And part of the underlying work on it suggests that folks that have landed in China or wherever uh, have been confronted with new patterns that defy all their previous experience and had to be curious and empathetic to the situation and not simply said, this is how we do it in America or in, you know, whatever, New York or and, and, and because their mind isn't shaped by those firsthand experiences, they somehow are just better at doing the work and better at being in teams. And, and I wonder, is that, is that what you're reporting exactly. from, from your own yeah. journeys? Yeah, exactly. And I think, and I go back to the small town again, is I knew that when I left, I wasn't going to see a place that was anywhere like it again. So I needed to accept the fact that I didn't know anything. And when you go to China, I, my first trip to China was in 2000. It was still barely a functioning um, economy. Yeah, um, still just coming out of a muck of, of poverty for 100 <laughs> years. Yeah. Oh God, yes. And and so as you get to see that, you're just you're aware. If somebody goes to if you're a native English speaker and you go to to the UK or you go to Australia or you go to Canada. You draw some uh, inferences that are really ludicrous. Oh, they speak the same language. That might be they think the same way. When you go to China, you have no idea what anybody's saying. So you surrender preconceived notions or you die. You don't, you're just, you're so not going to survive. Th- this can be an experience. I mean, as you were sort of warming up to your personal narrative, um, you were moving through a well-worn groove in uh I think not just American experience, but in the world's experience, you know, small town boy goes off the desire to see the world and goes to a big city, joins the Navy, whatever. And, and as we're moving through these ideas a little bit, 
it occurs to me that um, you can probably just do it any time. It's the, 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 the sort of transformation of self that comes from, from seeing the world or seeing a wide variety of different kinds of experiences, right? Like for me, maybe going to Idaho and living there for a month might be transformative at, at that level that, that, that a China trip might be. Um, it, it's a way to change yourself into a different kind of processor of information and patterns. Is it a thing you can do yeah, yeah. to remedy what ails yeah. you? Well, I think, yeah, and I and I do, and I, and it still uh, it still drives me today. I, one of my worn out cliches is, if you know why, how is easy. So you've got to get to mm. why. You've got to understand why. Um, and the only way you're going to do that is you're going to talk to people. You're going to interact with them. You're going to try to understand first, and that can be a life thing. It can be a, a business thing. It could be an educational thing. Um, you've got to be you've got to be radically radically aware that you're not self-aware. You've got to be able to confront your own personal bias. Um, when you walk into you know, one of my recent trips, this actually goes back a couple of years to one of my projects in China. Um, my engineer that went with me on that was from Indiana and he absolutely couldn't eat local cuisine. Absolutely mm-hmm. couldn't do it. He couldn't get out of his Indiana mindset um, about that. And it just made the trips miserable for him. And so you can... How many trips before he changed? Um, he, uh, he made five trips and then he resigned and found another job because he didn't like going to China. <laughs> so it just broke him. It broke yeah. Him. So he, it may not work on everyone. Real, you know, it, and it's not. And, it, and that's what I'm saying is is that if you're aware that you're not self-aware, that you want and but want to be, then you're in the game. Then you're in the game. Then you're in the game, because it's yeah. it's 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 you and I have met people in our entire lives who start spewing bullshit, and you and you're you're shaking your head, going, "Do they even understand how idiotic this sounds?" Mm-hmm. It's you know it's that cliche of know what you don't know, but you've got to embrace that. And mm-hmm. if it does, then it turns you into an infinitely curious person, and you re- become rigidly flexible. So the transformational power of uh, of a little trip, I guess. Uh, I guess much has been written about uh, divorcees taking a summer in Italy and this and that, and perhaps it has the same power on leaders <laughs> and founders and and, uh, and innovation. Uh, it's so fascinating. If you had a script scripted for a person of, let's say, any age, if they had. Uh, a chunk of time, uh, how would you script it? I mean, just go live in, in the most foreign place for a big chunk or hopscotch across a whole bunch of places or just like call up all your friends from college and go visit each one of them one by one for a month or two. Like, let's say you got like a couple months to mess around. How would you do it? Where the goal is personal transformation on the other end. Um, so, <laughs> interesting. Um, I would snack. I would snack a place here, a place that someone says, "Oh, this is really interesting." Your you you call your friends, but don't don't go visit your friends if they live in Miami. Don't go visit your friends if they live in Chicago. Call your friends in Miami and Chicago and say, "What's the most interesting place you've ever been that I can go spend a week or ten days and learn something about them?" And then gather that up and build a matrix of saying, "I've now got three months, and I'm going to go to these are the top places I want to go, and this is the kind of time I want to spend." And embrace your ignorance. Um, it's 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 incredibly liberating when you don't go. It's intimidating. 
Um, you go on the ground. I, I was at some friend's wedding in uh, Nicaragua a couple of years ago. And uh, I don't speak Spanish. I don't have a second language. I struggle with English as my first language. And yet members of the group who did speak Spanish, they, were, they got exhausted translating for me because I wanted to know a lot of stuff. And I'd start asking people questions. <laughs> the most curious guy in the room. No. Sometimes, according to my wife, a little irritating. <laughs> Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. So you've run big, you've run big teams, you've run big organizations. I mean, as I look through the list, like some of them are just famous. Everyone knows yellowpages.com and, 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 and under those leadership positions would have been lots of different kinds of people. And, 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 and actually just staying on this topic, this recipe or this um, prescription to travel as a leader, you do find people that need to change that are in your organization. And it is not a straightforward thing to simply ask them to, <clears throat> or even to get them to see the need to change. And there are a bunch of managerial mechanics, that I think very clever people have um, have laid out on, on how you help take someone through a process of change. What do you think about um, travel or, or some other kind of personal transformation journey as a tool to use on those kinds of problems? Like, like you have some colleagues that aren't getting along they both have big departments or you have some person whose team's not doing their best or there's some person who... Um, you know, they're kind of fine at this scale, but the group's about to get a lot bigger and, 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 and a lot of the kinds of things they're going to need to adjust to be more versatile as a leader are, are looking like blocks for them. I mean, you could send them to a coach or something, but is, but is there something in this toolkit that, that has helped you or that you've ever prescribed to others? Well, so, so I go back to the first trip that I was taking to China. I had a couple of people in, in, in my group. So my, my head of technology, uh, my CTO, and then uh, my EVP who wanted to be my COO. And they didn't particularly get along. In fact, they didn't get along. They didn't really trust each other. Um, and so we added one other person to the team for the four of us to go. And he is uh, a, uh, he was born and raised in mainland China. So spoke English really well, obviously spoke Chinese. And he was the only, uh, only person on the, on the, the trip who spoke Chinese. So now we had to put all four of us into this microcosm, this envelope of we're here, we're trying to get a deal done, we're interfacing with the government on a just a, an intense basis. 
And so it almost became one of those trust building seminars, but we had to fly to, uh, to Beijing to do it. Um, but we came out as a stronger group because we all had to trust each other because of, uh, with three of the three of us being lost. If, if Jean Ping hadn't been there, we would, we would have been lost. Um, and you and needed each other. You were all together. Absolutely. You had to Justin Calibrate, otherwise the whole thing had blown up and there was a team, like a mission that had to be achieved. And, 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 and the intensity of it was, again, because of the time, we were looked at very, very askance by the government. Now, I don't want any government looking at me going, mm, I don't know that I trust him, <laughs> let alone <laughs> China in 2000. Oh, my Lord. There Scary. Could have been that time somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, yeah, why don't you come over here instead of getting on the airplane? So, yes. So we did meet each other and, and, and we had to depend on each other. And, and the group of us were there for seven days. And then uh, it took us four more trips to get this deal done. And, and I would variably take one or two of the others with me. But we built on that experience. And for the balance of the time that we owned the company, um, it was really, it would be, it, it, Lawrence talking to Katon saying, you remember when we were in Beijing and, and these are the two that were having a difficult time getting along. Right. And, right. I mean, and, you it, know, it, if, it if you were to oversimplify your story, uh, you did some team building, but, but when people but take that oversimplified recommendation and they say, Hey, my, I'm taking my group out for some team building, you go to some utterly shallow, low stakes thing where the group can fragment anyway, no one needs each other anyway. It's just time on the clock that you've ended up spending together doing something unimportant. I think a lot of team building has that feeling. The example that yeah. you give, because it's so real, it is high stakes, the business is on the line, you guys need each other to avoid being arrested or at least to make your point to your customer or whatever. That's really real. I wonder if there are uh, some some spaces in between those extremes where um, yeah, maybe colleagues ought to be on that business trip together instead of solo. Or maybe, uh, you know, um, you you two should uh, try to work on this emergency project, even though neither of you knows anything about it. Uh, and it's actually some third person's uh, typical bailiwick, where we're a natural but not truly uh, existential crisis in the business, something urgent, something important, something with a goal where uh, a team can be defined and is put in some adversity because they're not exactly well-suited. I wonder if a tool like that might might be a healthy tool. It was, it was, and, 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 and most likely, because as you, were, as you were identifying the team building, I'm going, yeah, this is foxhole team building is what we ended up doing. Um, mm. Now, it's somewhere in between. So you've, you've got the shallow team building, your point, foxhole team building, that's quite intense and extreme, but in the middle. Um, the whole concept of team building to me as a some sort of a scripted process is just a little forced. And that I, I guess why it, it sort of exists. It's you know, it comes to mind the people that, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna close my eyes and fall backwards and trust that you're gonna carry it, catch me. Really? because uh, we do that in the real world. But I think the other team building that is not officially that is as you sort of touched on, we've got we've got a project that's got to get done. We've it's not an existential threat, but it needs to get done because it's important. We've got all this data and all this feedback, so this could be an important thing. I need two people who can actually execute on this thing, 
and you put two people in the room who are you know, leaders or want to be leaders and need to come on the, the those off. But I think so activity team building, I guess, would be what I would call it. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And have you found yourself deploying that kind of thing? I mean, you know, you've led lots of people. You've made a bunch of great observations here. You've been through the experiences. I, w I wonder if you have a really intentional toolkit you use to resolve, uh, let's call it friction between between people, whether whether or not it's this this travel and team building kind of behavior. Maybe you've got some other that, yeah, tools in your up your sleeve. You know, uh, so so I would think that. And I keep circling back into this issue of asking why a lot. And it's, um, I've, I've listened to almost all of your podcasts at this point, and I don't, so I don't remember who was was mentioning about, um, I think you were talking, who you were talking to that was about um, snacking. It was using the daily dogs eating the dog food. Um, yeah, it was Stephen Wolf, the Mathematica guy. I mean, he's a legendary scientist, and somehow we got ourselves into <laughs> snacking. <laughs> and 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 so the the idea of asking why and not spending a lot of time on it because um, it, it, I, I get this question a lot you know management or leadership well nobody grew up and say oh I want to be managed they want they want to be led and so uh, the leaders don't have to be the the ones that write that in fact, in fact that was that was the example you used was when. Uh, Sergey and Larry would go in and with a with a stopwatch and talk about and, and check with the engineers. They didn't have to rewrite the code. That isn't why they were there. But asking why a lot helps people make better uh, decisions, and it also surfaces the best decision as a group. So in my organizations, that's from the day we started to the time time that it's grown is. Um, asking why is a core, core issue. And it's not to ask why to get people to defend something. It's ask why to find out what the motivation is. What are we solving here? What is the problem we're trying to solve? Um, why will people use this? And if you build that in culturally, it's just, it's core to your brand. Um, and when we've tried to add team members from organizations that just weren't fitting, these were the people that would walk in and say, well, this is dumb. The reason, and we do it over at XYZ this way, we're going, you know, that's just not going to work for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so on both sides, people should be asking why. So maybe someone, someone shows up from, you know, IBM and arrives at Microsoft in the 90s and say, oh, well, this is how we do it at IBM. And you say, well, why do you do it at IBM this way? Right. And, and the answer can't be, it's just because we always did, and it should be self-evident to everyone in the room that when, the, when that answer arrives, that, that that's probably not a real why answer. Uh, and right. if you can come up with your shared set of motivations on, on what the goals are, then, then, then you should be able to find uh, a well, resolution. All, and, all, all, all the world is, is people. We could eliminate conflict 100% if people would be curious about why other people want to do something some way and come up with some level of how it coexists. So even in that interpersonal standoff of the bureaucratic political, we're having a meeting where it's all eye rolls and no one's really showing the goods. The, the move is, why do you think my proposal is not the one that we should pursue? And there's some answer. And the eye roll is because you think that answer is bullshit. And so then you say, well, why is that true? Or why do you think that? Why, why, why? And you might find yourself in a frustrating mode where you've asked why six times, like Taiichi Ono and Toyota back in 
the day team is helping build that business. But it, is that is that is that what, is that where you're getting us? Yeah, it's, it's such it, a it, 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 it's such a modest move to ask why and not to challenge, but ask why. But ask, keep asking until you get like a reality. And 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 one one of my driving principles has always been ask one more question. Mm-hmm. If I can get an answer to a question, there's a question I need another answer to. And so you just keep going down, and it's not to be tedious or to overwhelm anybody, but once you get somebody to open up, when I was when I was doing portfolio management, my clients would come in and they would they would have a certain set of expectations that you would think from people who had money and wanted to invest, but then you start peeling back that onion, and you could find out that they had something that drove them in a way that an outcome they wanted was different than the outcome on the people that were sitting right next to them. Same thing if you use it in a uh, in a very non-threatening way in a business. My wife's with Amazon, and a six-page memo isn't a clever marketing thing. It's how they run their business. And it doesn't have to be six pages. It can't be longer than six pages. And the first thing that you have to do is you have to you actually have to frame the question, frame the the problem, frame the solution. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And then people read that before the meeting really starts. And so they already know what the author's thinking is. And then this it, it then starts the conversation. And it's never a conversation of attacking the idea. It's the people in the room trying to bring other learnings to the conversation so that the outcome is the most strategic decision they can make on that issue. It's it's genius. It's just genius. What I took from this passage, uh, which I think is really interesting, yes, is it's the power of that that sequence of whys and and actually it's just getting at them like you know, like you're the financial advisor for some high net worth. And your people are your high net worth and you are their financial advisor when you're when you're running a big team. Um, and I, I actually can't think that I have spent time with any of my senior leaders investigating very deeply why they're why they're here you know maybe the first why second why but probably not sixth take your business for example why why they're not we work why they're not 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 regis why they're and all that it's even down into your client base i mean you know this stuff the stuff that you've done is legend um, when I look, you know, I, I think we ask a lot history. more questions of our customers than we ask of our of ourselves and our colleagues. And I think the the, the value on self awareness, which uh, I think many would agree, but perhaps not all act on, is there. I, I think the deep understanding of others, uh, empathy is is two things. Empathy is caring for others, but it's also seeing what makes them tick. Uh, I think in in our culture at the moment, we have uh, quite an open discussion that empathy is important, meaning caring how other people feel and are, but I'm not so sure that that much has been surfed on the, surfaced on the mechanics of, of actually seeing it correctly and diagnosing it and finding out how does somebody feel uh, so that you can actually care about it and do something about it. When you were, when you were talking to your, your partner from good.com and you yes. guys were discussing the, the EQs and, and the, the Dalio thing of putting the card on your neck and all that. He said yeah. something, and it just triggered, and it was that he had people write owner's manuals on themselves, and, and, and he regretted that he didn't go back to it, 
and and was thinking in, in the context you guys were discussing how does that work. But but I thought about that for a minute. I'm going okay. So the best person to tell you how I work is me. And here's a couple of things. First issue is if I tell you in my owner's manual that I do something, I'd better well be radically transparent about that because ultimately. Uh, if I don't, if I tell you, oh, that my hours are X and Y and I work all these and blah, 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 the first time I don't do that, you're going to have two conclusions. One is I'm a liar, and second is you're not going to trust me. <laughs> right. And so, and, and your own buy-in on it. So how about my opinion? But then there's your two. I mean, you're setting a goal you want to live up to when you disclose it on your own. Right, exactly. Well, and, and, and that's, a, that's a trip that I learned back in the money management business was if I told clients I was going to be in the office at six o'clock in the morning. The first time they called me, if I wasn't there, I was a liar. I lost their trust. It just wasn't going to happen. So, so, but I thought about that in the context of saying, okay, so the owner's manual is us. It's like a resume. So you look at my LinkedIn profile and it's going to tell you all this wonderful stuff that I've done. And the reality of it is it's been a rocky road. You know, it's been pinging back and forth. There is no straight line. It's all series of, of dramas here and there. So I can either tell you, that, you know, put my best foot forward on a LinkedIn thing, but in an owner's manual, there's got to be some of that good and bad. But, but now imagine having that owner's manual for the next senior lead that you hire in your group. And they tell you in advance, you now have built a personal connection and, and, and I don't mean personal connection and, hey, come over to the house for a barbecue on the weekend. It's you're building something, a personal thing that gets us beyond the defensiveness, takes, takes pieces of the armor off that we all build around ourselves in an organization and gives you the context where you can start with the, so why do you do that? What is it about this? Or what, why is it you think this? So. Very true. And it gives permission for people to be different. When you put your user manual on your NAC or, you know, publish it internally or whatever, uh, you get to say how you're different from other people. Otherwise, you wouldn't need one of those. <laughs> you're allowed to be well, different. And, and, and God help you if there's another person that's like you, run like the wind. <laughs> so. Dan, this has been an amazing conversation. I, I really uh, have enjoyed it. And, you know, I, pro I would not have predicted that I would have learned so much about the transformational power of travel and of asking the question why. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I'm, I'm flattered to be part of it.